Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. President's House, Washington City, November 2nd, 1800. My dearest friend, we arrived here last night, or rather yesterday, at one o'clock, and here we dined and slept. The building is in a state to be habitable, and now we wish for your company. I shall say nothing of public affairs. I am very glad you consented to come on, for you would have been more anxious at Quincy than here, and I, to all my other solectudines mordecances, as Horace calls them, i.e. biting cares, should have added a great deal on your account. Besides, it is fit and proper that you and I should retire together and not one before the other." Before I end my letter, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. I shall not attempt a description of it. You will form the best idea of it from inspection. I am with unabated confidence and affection, your John Adams. President Adams found himself full of concerns upon his arrival in the new federal capital at the beginning of November 1800, and little did he know that they would only have reason to increase as the month went on. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Steve Guerra for providing the intro quote for this episode. Steve is the host of two podcasts, The History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen both of which are constants among my podcast downloads. In addition to checking out his podcast, I also wanted to mention that Steve, along with many other podcasters, including Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions podcast, are going to be speaking at the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York City coming up on Saturday, June 29th, 2019. For those of you listening to this past that date, I'm sorry that you missed it. But for listeners closer to the date, you should consider checking it out. For more information, go to intelligentspeechconference, all one word, dot com. I'll post a link to Steve's podcast as well as to the conference on the source notes page for this episode at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, along with sharing information on my social media. Washington, D.C. had been abuzz with activity in the few months leading up to Adams's anticipated arrival. As noted by historian William Seale, quote, As autumn came and the season changed, the city of workmen took on a very different aspect. Quiet nights were replaced in some quarters by nights a bit noisier, and later, the kind the new people from Philadelphia were used to. Along the alternately muddy and dusty avenues, well-dressed couples in city clothes trudged to dinner parties and open houses. Walking sticks discouraged bold hogs and cattle, and helped in navigating the hazardous ways. Carriages passed here and there, and many more people now were seen on horseback. 
shopkeepers had opened their doors, selling such trivia as bonnets and gilt curtain pins, which until recently had been in little demand. Though elements of urbanity were starting to appear, Washington, D.C. was still very much an out-of-the-way place. As noted by James Roger Sharp, quote, To say that Washington was difficult to get to was a gross understatement. For those traveling from Philadelphia to the capital, it took three days just to get to Baltimore. The roads through the forest the rest of the way were so bad and poorly marked that stage drivers celebrated any trip during which their coaches didn't overturn or get mired in the mud. Despite the difficulties in getting to the new capital, stagecoach lines had started increasing the numbers of runs that they made to and from Washington, D.C. that summer and fall. When they finally got there, again from Sharp, quote, the sight of the new capital had to be disheartening. Stumps of fallen trees and piles of cleared brush, as well as poorly marked, barely passable roads and half-finished buildings dominated the landscape. After heavy rains, the roads would become impassable, with the result that many carriages had to be pulled from the mire. Not all of the federal employees would opt to move with the capital. Some quit their positions rather than leave Philadelphia. For the ones that did move, they would find that only one of the public buildings had been completed and that the quote-unquote city had few amenities. There were no schools or churches, and only a few private homes had been finished. Most government officials, including congressmen, cabinet members, and even the vice president, would have to find room to stay, quote, in the seven or eight boarding houses in Washington. Even what we now know of as the White House, which was then referred to as in Adams's letter as the President's House or as, quote-unquote, the Palace, was not complete upon Adams's arrival. The President's furniture had arrived in late June and was being set up in October. Only six of the mansion's 30 rooms had been plastered, and fires were kept burning in all the fireplaces on the main floor all day and night to help the plaster to dry faster. The main staircase leading to the second floor was not finished, but that did not stop Secretary of State John Marshall from taking up residence in some of the rooms upstairs when he couldn't find anywhere else to stay. The city may not have had much, but it did already have an abundance of newspapers. In the fall of 1800, in the D.C. area, the Washington Federalist, the Museum, the Cabinet, the Alexandria Advertiser, and the Universal Gazette would all be founded. The one that will stand the test of time and make its way into the annals of history, however, would be the National Intelligencer. The Intelligencer was founded by Samuel Harrison Smith. Smith had been born in Philadelphia in 1772 and played witness in his early years to the movement towards independence and the establishment of the nation's government with his father, Jonathan Bayard Smith, serving in numerous offices, including as a delegate to the Continental Congress. Samuel went to college at the University of Pennsylvania and, after graduating, opened up a print shop in Philadelphia. He would found his first paper, The New World, in 1796. At the age of 24, Smith is believed to be the youngest newspaper editor in the city at the time. And, according to Frank Vanderlinden, he, quote, certainly was the busiest. His twice-a-day editions kept him and his staff working practically around the clock. This busy schedule, however, did not stop him from thinking of affairs of the heart. And soon after the founding of the New World, Smith would begin to court the 18-year-old Margaret Bayard of New Brunswick, New Jersey. In her short life, Bayard had seen her share of sorrow. Born at Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, while her father was serving under General Washington at Valley Forge in 1778, 
Margaret's mother died when she was two years old, and the next decade would see the death of her new stepmother after only a few years, then the death of her older brother James. Her father would suffer financial setbacks, but was still able to send his daughter to a boarding school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. She was well-read in the classics and proved to be very outgoing. In the winter of 1796-1797, Margaret was visiting her cousin in Philadelphia when Samuel started paying calls on her, and she quickly charmed the editor. There were a couple of issues, though. Not only were they second cousins, but Samuel was a fervent supporter of Jefferson, while Margaret and her family were Federalists. This would not stop Samuel from confessing his love to Margaret in March 1797, but they would have reason to fear that Margaret's father would not approve of the match. Samuel wrote to him, and Colonel Bayard, after speaking with Margaret, wrote back to the editor expressing his concerns. However, Margaret was finally able to convince him, and he assented to the marriage. Samuel determined to get himself in a more firm financial situation before they took their vows, and, as with everything else, set himself to work. Four years later, that's right, four years later. Talk about a long engagement, eh? Anyway, four years later, Samuel was firmly established, quote, as one of the most widely respected journalists in Philadelphia and had offers to buy other papers, one in Philly while the other was in New York. As he mauled over these offers, he received a visit from none other than Vice President Jefferson himself. As recounted by Lyndon, Jefferson asked Smith to move down to Washington, D.C. to take over the newspaper that the Democratic Republicans were establishing there to serve, quote, as the official voice of their party. Though they had their concerns and the move would take them away from their families, both Samuel and Margaret were excited about the possibility and decided to make the move together after, of course, making things official and finally getting married. Despite objections from family members and a bit of second-guessing at a couple of points, on September 29, 1800, Samuel and Margaret were wed and the next day would depart from Philadelphia bound for their new home. Like many in the U.S., the young editor would be waiting anxiously for word of how the negotiations in France were progressing. In the meantime, partisan tensions continued to flare over the quasi-war. The Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Justice Alfred Moore, who you may remember from episode 2.17, ruled in Bass v. Tingey in August 1800 to uphold a law passed the year prior entitling an American who recaptured an American merchant ship that had been seized by an enemy 96 hours prior the right to one half of the value of the ship and the cargo of the ship. Now, in so doing, Moore proclaimed France to be, quote, an enemy nation, which did not sit well at all with Democratic Republicans. However, at this point, even Adams, who had believed in the possibility of a peaceful resolution with France for the past few years, even when most everyone else had given up hope, wrote to Marshall on August 30th that, quote, it will be our destiny, for what I know, Republicans as we are, to fight the French Republic alone. I cannot account for the long delay of our envoys. We cannot depart from our honor, nor violate our faith, to please the heroic consul, i.e. Napoleon. Political campaigners on both sides would pick up on these themes in appeals to the public. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At a Federalist campaign address in Rhode Island, arguments were made in favor of the buildup of the military to defend against, quote, the depredations which have been committed on our commerce by the powers at war. Democratic-Republican campaigners, on the other hand, cited the rising taxes and charged that, quote, our manufacturers are superseded by British productions due to the Federalist attempts to improve relations with that nation, and asked bluntly, quote, is it not high time for a change? Though efforts were made to coordinate across various sections of the nation by both sides, as noted by historian Noble Cunningham, quote, Campaign literature frequently appealed to local prejudices and sectional attachments. This meant efforts in New England to get out the Federalist vote to combat, quote, the great and powerful state of Virginia, while Democratic-Republicans worked to secure the vote of German-Americans in Pennsylvania by playing up their fears of the Alien Act. The attacks on the presidential candidates would get rather personal, with the Gazette of the United States publishing an open letter to Jefferson asserting that, quote, You have been, sir, a governor, an ambassador, and a secretary of state, and had to desert each of these posts from that weakness of nerves, want of fortitude, and total imbecility of character, which have marked your whole political career, and most probably will attend you to your grave. James Callender, meanwhile, would attack Adams by calling him, quote, one of the most egregious fools upon the continent a, quote, strange compound of ignorance and ferocity, of deceit and weakness, and a, quote, hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. In modern politics, 2019 as of this recording, we're used to negative campaigning. But for turn-of-the-century Americans, though partisan politics had been building up steam for quite a while now, as we've discussed, this mudslinging was still seen as more of an aberration than the norm, and one can only imagine how this campaigning to people's fears impacted the populace. Concerns about the tone of the election, however, weren't isolated to the domestic front. An official in the British Foreign Service around this time wrote that, quote, the whole system of the American government seems to me to be tottering to its foundations, and so far from being able to enforce upon the country good faith towards foreign powers, I much doubt their power of maintaining internal tranquility. Dear listener, put a pen in that thought, as, spoiler alert, this won't be the last we hear of this before the election of 1800 is settled. However, there was at least one bit of tangible progress. The government had a new permanent capital, and, as of October 13th, the president was underway towards it. As Adams wrote on, though, one problem after another would present itself. The first had to do with the man who was Adams' supposed running mate and Hamilton's stalking horse in the 1796 election, Thomas Pinckney. As part of the electioneering of the time, the Philadelphia Aurora had published a letter which it claimed had been written by Adams that stated that Pinckney, quote, had been appointed U.S. Minister to England during Washington's tenure because of family lobbying and blatant British influence. The letter would be reprinted in Baltimore, then in the Charleston Gazette, where Pinckney himself would read it, then grab his pen and paper and write Adams in defense, quote, that I never, either directly or indirectly, by myself or by my friends, have been concerned in any British intrigue or connected with British influence. Not only would Pinckney send this letter on to Adams, 
but he also had it published in the Charleston Gazette. With the situation in South Carolina being uncertain due to, quote, some of the newly elected legislatures seeming to be uncommitted to either party, this was the last thing Adams needed when he was in need of all the support he could get. When Adams arrived in Philadelphia and received Pinckney's letter, he crafted a lengthy response. First, he started with praise, quote, for the friendly and respectful style of Pinckney's letter. He quickly cast out on his authorship of the letter, of which he said, quote, I have no copy nor any very particular recollection. Adams also remarked that at the time the letter was supposedly written, May 1792, quote, it was my misfortune to be wholly unacquainted with all the gentlemen who bear the name of Pinckney. As the letter goes on, he remarks that, quote, on this occasion, it is but justice and duty in me to declare that I have not at this time the smallest reason to believe or suspect that you or your brother ever solicited any appointment under government abroad or at home that the whole conduct of both as far as it has come to my knowledge, and I've had considerable opportunities to know the conduct of both since 1792, has shown minds candid, able, and independent, wholly free from any kind of influence from Britain and from any improper bias in favor of that country or any other. Yeah, he was laying it on pretty thick, but the end is the coup de grace. Quote, I cannot conclude without observing that we are fallen on evil times. On evil times indeed are we fallen, if every private conversation is immediately to be betrayed and misrepresented in the newspapers, and every frivolous and confidential letter is to be dragged by the hand of treachery from its oblivion of eight years and published by malice and revenge for the purpose of making mischief. Though Adams would not print his response and told Pinckney as such, he added a note at the end that he had no qualms about his response being published with Pinckney's original letter. The fire hopefully put out, Adams continued on south. As of yet, I found no evidence to show as to when Adams learned of another challenge aimed at him, this time from the north. But on October 24th, a 54-page pamphlet started making its way around New York City entitled, a letter from Alexander Hamilton concerning the public conduct and character of John Adams Esquire, President of the United States. As it made its way through the nation, Democratic Republicans up and down the eastern seaboard would cheer. Madison wrote that he, quote, rejoiced that Republicanism is likely to be so completely triumphant, while William Duane said that Hamilton's, quote, pamphlet has done more mischief to the parties concerned than all my labors. Even Hamilton's own biographer, Ron Chernow, described the pamphlet as, quote, a petulant survey of John Adams' life and presidency. In it, Hamilton would place emphasis on Adams's quote, great intrinsic defects of character, including his, quote, ungovernable temper, his, quote, disgusting egotism, his, quote, bitter animosity, and his, quote, eccentric tendencies. He would say that Adams's personality made him, quote, unfit for the office of chief magistrate, since his, quote, ill humors and jealousies have divided and distracted the supporters of the government, in addition to, quote, furnishing deadly weapons to its enemies by unfounded accusations. After 50-something pages, however, in a section that Chernow quips was, quote, particularly absurd, Hamilton would call on his readers to support Adams and General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney equally in the upcoming election. Yeah, 
The pamphlet really can be summed up as, quote, This guy's absolutely awful, but please give him and Pinckney your vote. Now, I should also point out that Hamilton was the guy who thought that publishing a pamphlet with extensive details about his extramarital affair would make that matter go away. So he's probably not your go-to guy for public relations. Noah Webster would express the disbelief that one can imagine a number of Federalists felt. He wrote to Hamilton that if Jefferson ended up becoming president, quote, the fault will lie at your door and your conduct on this occasion will be discerned little short of insanity. Some Federalists would express their support of Hamilton's pamphlet, including former Senator Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who said that, quote, the assertions of the pamphlet, I take it for granted, are true. And if true, surely it must be admitted that Mr. Adams is not fit to be president, and his unfitness should be made known to the electors and the public. I conceive it a species of treason to conceal from the public his incapacity. However, Federalist supporters of Hamilton in this action were few and far between. So how did the president react to this, you might ask? Honestly, for someone accused of being bad-tempered, he seems from the primary record to have had a quite measured response. He did not respond publicly, though it does seem that at some point he did draft a response to it. Whether Adams ever had any intentions of publishing it or just composed it to blow off steam, it would sit in his papers unpublished. Instead, he wrote to a friend that, quote, This pamphlet I regret more on account of its author than on my own, because I am confident it will do him more harm than me. This did not mean that Adams thought, however, that there would be no harm to him because of it. John shared with Abigail that he felt Hamilton's pamphlet, quote, will ensure the choice of the man whom he dreads, or pretends to dread, more than me. Adams' biographer David McCullough concluded that, with his pamphlet, quote, Hamilton had amply demonstrated that it was he who had become a burden to the party, he, if anyone, who seemed to have departed from his senses. Indeed, to Adams' point, this pamphlet would result in a loss in Hamilton's ability to influence the course of events, as we shall soon see. Speaking of the president, around 1 o'clock on Saturday, November 1st, as two of the commissioners of the District of Columbia were inspecting the main floor of the president's house, quote, the president was seen rolling up to the south entrance in his coach and four. He had two people accompanying him by horseback, but as noted by David McCullough, quote, there was no one else, no honor guard, no band playing, no entourage of any kind. The two commissioners and a few workers at hand comprised the welcoming committee for the arrival of John Adams at what we now know of as the White House. However, as his journey through the streets of Washington to the palace had not gone unnoticed, Adams was soon receiving calls from men welcoming him to his new home while his bags were unloaded from the coach and his office set up for him. That evening, quote, he, i.e. Adams, ate his supper and after nightfall, walked with a single candle up the little winding stair to sleep. As the processes of selecting presidential electors happened in various states in the Union through the month of November, Adams would have much to occupy his time as he waited. A week after the president's arrival in Washington, a newspaper in Baltimore, Maryland, printed news of the convention of Mort Fontaine. Though there was still no official word received from the envoys, one has to imagine that Adams was relieved at the news that his persistence in seeking a peaceful resolution had borne fruit. A little more than two weeks after John's arrival, Abigail Adams arrived in the new federal capital. She had made an important stop on the way, however, 
and brought news to her husband. Unlike John, she did stop to visit with her son Charles and found him gravely ill. As described by Abigail in a letter to her sister Mary Cranch, quote, a distressing cough, an affliction of the liver, and a dropsy will soon terminate a life which might have been most valuable to himself and others. His physician says he is past recovery. Charles's condition shocked Abigail, as there had been no indication that he was in such a state, but the illness had come on quickly. Though one can imagine how difficult it was to leave his bedside, Abigail did continue with her plans to join John in Washington, D.C., leaving Charles in the care of his sister, Nabby. The journey would not be an easy one as, quote, her party of nine wandered on and off the road south. Sometimes the way was so overgrown that a man had to sit on the roof of the coach and chop branches away. Other times the procession was halted by walls of trees. The party carried on despite the challenges, and finally, on November 16th, she arrived. As John had invited her to do in his letter upon his arrival, as quoted in the intro, Abigail certainly formed her own opinion of the palace and the federal city. Quote, I arrived about one o'clock at this place known by the name of the city, and the name is all that you can call so. As I expected to find it, a new country with houses scattered over a space of 10 miles and trees and stumps in plenty with a castle of a house. So I found it. The president's house is in a beautiful situation in front of which is the Potomac with a view of Alexandria. The country around is romantic, but a wild, a wilderness at present. This house is built for ages to come. I'd much rather live in the house at Philadelphia. Not one room or chamber is finished of the whole. It is habitable by fires in every part, 13 of which we are obliged to keep daily or sleep in wet and damp places. Despite her reservations about the accommodations, she did what she could to get the household in order. The Adamses had six household staff to help with the work, including their steward, John Breesler, and his wife. Breesler worked to get the rooms in order, quote, to suit the Adamses' customs. As described by William Seale in his two-part examination of the history of the White House, quote, most of the Adams's family life took place upstairs in the west end of the house. The president and Mrs. Adams occupied two rooms on the west end of the south side, the corner room and the one next to it, using both as bedrooms. For most of the history of the White House, these have remained the president's bedroom and dressing room. The president's office lay through a door on the east side of the larger bedroom. Next, going east, was the upstairs oval parlor called by the Adamses the ladies' drawing room and furnished with a large suite of crimson-colored mahogany furniture from the drawing room in Philadelphia. The room served sometimes as a sitting room for the domestic circle, which included only the president and Mrs. Adams, a grown son, Thomas, and one of Charles's children, a little girl named Susanna. Because of the cold, however, the Adamses ordinarily used the bedrooms, kept closed up and warm, for sitting. Downstairs, the main floor was used mostly for official functions. Only one room on the east end was in use, a bedroom, in what was to be the green room. The state rooms were all to the west, beneath the family living quarters. One of the often remarked features of Abigail Adams' tenure in the White House is that she used the unfinished east room to dry clothes. Besides the new unfinished home and the new unfinished city, one of the biggest adjustments for the Adamses was being in the South and in a society with much more enslaved labor than they were accustomed. 
As we discussed last episode, while there had mostly been a decrease in the enslaved population of the North, the disproportionately larger enslaved population in the South had increased. As discussed in episodes 1.27 and 2.15, enslaved labor had been used in the construction of the new federal capital, and Abigail Adams was able to watch from her window as enslaved laborers worked on the president's house. She wrote to Cotton Tufts of how she observed 12 enslaved men engaged in what we would now call a slowdown strategy of working but putting in minimal effort. In comparing the results to the free labor to be found in the North, Abigail remarked that, quote, two of our hardy New England men would do as much work in a day as the whole 12. But it is true republicanism that drives the slaves half-fed and destitute of clothing to labor whilst the owner walks about idle. Despite her critiques of life in Washington, Abigail's arrival would have an impact on the nascent society in the federal city. Again, from Seal, quote, When Mrs. Adams arrived in town and began receiving and returning calls, she learned how eager the ladies were for her to light up the staterooms and have a social event. President Adams had hosted a levy on November 11th, but otherwise there had been no functions at the palace. A week after her arrival, the President and First Lady would be provided with an occasion to welcome visitors. In anticipation of the impending opening of the new congressional session, John had been at work on his annual message. And when November 22nd arrived, quote, Congress convened for the first time in joint session in the unfinished Capitol, and President Adams appeared before the assembled body to deliver his address. His speech would begin with a kudos and a prayer, which went as follows, quote, I congratulate the people of the United States on the assembling of Congress at the permanent seat of their government, and I congratulate you, gentlemen, on the prospect of a residence not to be changed. Although there is cause to apprehend that accommodations are not now so complete as might be wished, yet there is great reason to believe that this inconvenience will cease with the present season. It would be unbecoming the representatives of this nation to assemble for the first time in this solemn temple without looking up to the supreme ruler of the universe and imploring his blessing. May this territory be the residence of virtue and happiness. In this city, may that piety and virtue that wisdom and magnanimity, that constancy and self-government, which adorn the great character whose name it bears, be forever held in veneration. Here and throughout our country, may simple manners, pure morals, and true religion flourish forever. Adams would use the opportunity to talk about not only the current state of affairs in the Union, but also to advocate for a continued push for national defense, specifically for naval defense. As noted by the president, quote, while our best endeavors for the preservation of harmony with all nations will continue to be used, the experience of the world and our own experience admonish us of the insecurity of trusting too confidently to their success. We cannot, without committing a dangerous imprudence, abandon those measures of self-protection which are adapted to our situation and to which, notwithstanding our pacific policy, the violence and injustice of others may again compel us to resort. Seasonable and systematic arrangements, so far as our resources will justify, for a navy adapted to defensive war and which may, in case of necessity, be quickly brought into use, seem to be as much recommended by wise and true economy as by a just regard for our future tranquility, for the safety of our shores, and for the protection of our property committed to the ocean. 
Unfortunately, Adams could not report a successful conclusion to the peace mission to France in his message, as still no official word had been received. But he did note that, quote, it is to be hoped that our efforts to effect an accommodation will at length meet with a success proportioned to the sincerity with which they have been so often repeated. As was customary, the Senate, followed by the House, delivered a response to Adams at the palace. As noted by Seale, quote, Traditionally in Philadelphia, some legislators had walked, some had ridden in their coaches, and others had joined in groups and rented coaches. There, the president's house had been only a trip of several blocks. Washington, D.C., however, was another story. Though Seale postulated that Pierre-Charles L'Enfant had envisioned such a procession from the Capitol building to the president's house along Pennsylvania Avenue when he was drafting the plan for the new city, his avenue that November was a sea of mud and rain fell continually. Plenty of vehicles appeared for the two parades. Hacks and carryalls had been hired off the streets of Baltimore. However, by the time they arrived at the palace, the senators and congressmen, quote, piled out of the rough, muddy vehicles, rushed across the wooden bridge in the rain into the entrance hall, where they stripped off their rain gear. With the East Room unfinished, the congressional delegations would be joined by ladies and then the president in the entrance hall, where they delivered their reply to Adams's annual message, followed by a response from the president before they were shown into the staterooms for refreshments. It sounds like the first official entertainments at the president's house were a sight to see indeed. The party atmosphere did not last long in Washington, as news came in from elections from around the country. We discussed the election in New York back in episode 2.19 and unsuccessful attempts by Democratic Republicans to change the way that the state's electors were chosen, though it turned out that leaving it as a choice by the state legislature worked in the Democratic Republicans' favor. Other attempts to change the way electors were chosen in other states had more success, and in some cases, it would prove to be a crucial change, such as Virginia switching from a by-district election to a winner-take-all, as discussed last episode. Rhode Island would be the only state in this election cycle to move from a choice of electors by the state legislature to a popular vote, which I should stress is still in many parts of the country often well-to-do white men rather than a reflection of all of the people of the United States. Georgia, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania would all switch from a popular vote of some sort to the state legislature choosing the presidential electors, thus leaving only five states where the popular vote determined the electors. It should be noted that Tennessee had what was described by James Roger Sharp as, quote, a confusing mix of district voting and legislative appointment. New England went as expected for Adams and Pinckney, despite hopes that the switch in Rhode Island might garner some support for the Democratic-Republicans. As discussed in episode 2.19, New York went for Jefferson and Burr as expected since May. Delaware went for Adams as expected, and despite a concerted effort by Democratic-Republicans in the state, the New Jersey state legislature awarded all seven of its votes to Adams and Pinckney. Jefferson and Burr, meanwhile, won the votes in Virginia, as well as Georgia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Thus, a few X factors remained in play. Starting with one of the most potentially problematic first, there were concerns that Pennsylvania may not even participate in the presidential election. Though Democratic Republicans had taken the governorship and lower house in that state, Federalists retained control in the state Senate and used that influence to keep a bill to designate how the state's electoral votes would be chosen from passing. 
If Pennsylvania didn't cast any votes, then it was thought that it might work in Adams' favor by lowering the number of votes needed for victory and removing potential votes for Jefferson off the board. Ultimately, though, a compromise was reached with the state legislature awarding eight votes to the Democratic-Republican ticket and seven to the Federalist ticket. Adams had seen a strong showing in Maryland in 1796, so the campaigning got rather spirited in that state. James Roger Sharp, in his examination of the election of 1800, noted the, quote, extensive canvassing and statewide electioneering in the presidential campaign in Maryland, certainly some of the most extensive done to that point in American history. The popular vote resulted in a 561 vote advantage for the Democratic-Republican ticket, which meant that Maryland's 10 electoral votes were split evenly between the two parties. Due to how they had parted ways professionally, one of the most vocal opponents of Adams in Maryland during this election would prove to be his former Secretary of War. James McHenry wrote to a colleague in Maryland that he felt that Federalists in the state should, quote, make little or no exertions for the federal candidate, not from any indifference to the good old cause, but due to the utter unfitness of one of the federal candidates to fill the office of president. A little further south, though North Carolina had gone for Jefferson in 1796, save one electoral vote for Adams, Federalists had made gains in the state, and it was thought even by Jefferson to be in contention. In August 1800, the vice president wrote to former Senator Pierce Butler of South Carolina, asserting that, quote, the state of the public mind in North Carolina appears mysterious to us, and asking for any information Butler might have. Adams would ultimately pick up some electoral votes in North Carolina, four to Jefferson's eight, due to the state choosing its electors by popular vote in the congressional districts. With every bit of news that came into Washington, Federalist and Democratic-Republican politicos were tallying up the unofficial results, and by late November, they were counting Adams and Jefferson as having 65 electoral votes each. At that point, there was only one more state left to choose its electors. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney's home state of South Carolina. Despite Hamilton's scheming on his behalf, General Pinckney had worked to distance himself from the effort. Indeed, Pinckney wrote to a New England Federalist, who then shared the letter with others, including Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddart, pledging that he would not abide people voting for him, but not voting in lockstep for Adams. As Pinckney biographer Marvin Zanazer noted, quote, Pinckney certainly did not believe that he would lose his home state, but with the pledge he made to the Adams Federalist, the prospect for a Federalist electoral victory dimmed. Why is that, you ask? Well, dear listener, though, quote, Pinckney's popularity apparently transcended hardening party lines in South Carolina, the same could not be said of Adams. Indeed, in 1796, when Pinckney's brother Thomas had been in the running, South Carolina's eight electors had voted for Thomas Pinckney and Thomas Jefferson. Not one vote was cast for Adams. South Carolina was willing to support a split ticket so long as they were both Southerners, but Pinckney's pledge made it harder for them to do so. He had expressed some willingness to compromise in a letter to former Secretary of War James McHenry, in which he said that if it was felt, quote, that Adams had abandoned federal principles and was thus unfit to be president, he would consent to receiving votes if the, quote, eastward and middle states put up, quote, another candidate in his stead, as, quote, the critical situation of our country may require it. 
James Roger Sharp attributes Pinckney's change of heart to the dispute between his brother Thomas and Adams that fall, as we discussed earlier. Prior to the South Carolina state legislatures convening on November 24th, however, there was little that anyone could do to predict how they would vote since, as we noted earlier in the episode, some of the new legislators refused to commit to one party or the other. When they met, though, they first elected a Democratic-Republican Speaker of the House, then went on to award the state's electoral votes to Jefferson and Burr. Word soon went out that the deed was done. Adams had lost. However, though Adams had lost, it was not yet clear that Jefferson had won, as we shall discuss in our next episode, which I'm calling the 36th ballot. Before we part ways, I'd like to thank Steve again for providing the intro quote for this episode. For links to his podcast, The History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. For those of you who would like to support this podcast, the website gives you numerous ideas on how to do just that. Listening to each episode is the crucial first step, but if you'd like to do more, there's info on the website on how you can help in spreading the word, leaving positive reviews, or sending books my way for future research. However you choose to support the podcast, I greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Do you have a question about Adams or his family or his presidency or anything else that may be floating around in your mind? If so, please feel free to send your questions via email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me via social media. I'm available at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. I'm putting together a Q&A episode to wrap up the Adam series, so get those questions in sooner rather than later so that I can launch that episode sometime in the third quarter of 2019. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, take care, dear friends. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.